welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm speaking with the wonderful Vanessa Sutherland. Vanessa is the Executive Vice President and Head of Government Relations and the Chief Legal Officer at Norfolk Southern Corporation. And what a story Vanessa's got right from the very early days where she was deciding whether to be an astrophysicist or to become a lawyer. Thankfully, for the legal profession, she decided on law. And frankly, she's an absolute rock star. Recently, been she was nominated or named in the National Diversity Council's Power 50. And she takes us through a story, and it's a fantastic one, right from you know how she developed an appetite for risk early on and throughout her career, how she stood up a legal ops department within Norfolk Southern, and also what diversity and inclusion means to Vanessa and some of the initiatives that she's focused on to achieve you know better outcomes around DNI. And Vanessa's the kind of person I tell you what, when you finish speaking to her, as I did, you just feel a lot better about. Well, you feel you can do better personally. She's a kind of person that just energizes you. So I know when I hung up, we finished the discussion, I reflected and thought, I can do better. So, and anyone that has that kind of impact on you, I think it's a fantastic ability. So as usual, folks, sit back, chillax and enjoy the show. Hello, Vanessa, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. So Vanessa, Executive Vice President of Government Relations and Chief Legal Officer of Norfolk Southern Corporation. I would love to hear a little bit about the Vanessa Sutherland story, at least up to this point. Tell me something. (laughs) (laughs) I know there's still a lot more to go. Yeah, there is, I'm sure. Yeah, there's a lot more to go. So I was kind of, you know, the lucky recipient of being the youngest of four. Having three older siblings who are 8, 10, and 15 years older, who had already gone through med school, engineering school, they're doctors, they're engineers. I could really do whatever I wanted. So my story starts in the opposite end of the law. I thought I was going to become a physicist. Um, I loved chemistry in uh, high school. So far, far it sounds like an underperforming family, I've got to tell you. (laughs) Okay, right, right, right now, no expectations, but it's <laughs> right. It must have been something in the coffee or the you know breakfast. I don't know, but you know there was just an expectation of you can do anything, which was really you know, very empowering if you yeah, think right. about having that message in your head. So, um, following my my brother, who's the oldest, graduated very early from high school and thought, you know, I don't really know. I think I want to be a physicist. That that was my passion astrophysics. I'm going to go become like the next, I don't know, Richard Feynman or Mickey Okaku or something like that. And I got to college and liberal arts opened my mind up. Poli-sci, art history, I'd studied in London, came back and, and really thought, I like the writing, reading, and analytical elements of art history, political science history. What do I do with that? So I was, you know, double major. I was only 20. I took a year off to work at the Department of Energy in the Inspector General's office and was mentored by a really wonderful woman whose brother was a partner at a law firm. And he said, man, you know, you, you like to ask questions. You, you seem nerdy, but relatable. You, you might want to go to law school. Yeah, you should be. And it was great. I thought, yeah, I could, I could become an art and entertainment lawyer. Why not? This sounds fabulous. But I got to law school and it turns out I'm still a science geek. I love math and tax and had a professor 
suggest that I get an MBA and have the ability to be more nimble in going into business or working at a law firm and doing group practice. And that is actually the predicate to my career. Yep. I spent the my career in house, as you know, yep. had a brief stand at a law firm, but really wasn't involved in the business the way that you are when you're making a product and you're delivering a service. Yep. There's so much more energy with that. And so I started out at a telecom company and that was a wild ride. We were doing this during the tech boom. We had an IPO. We were acquired by WorldCom. And as we all might remember from WorldCom, yes. for fraud at that yep. point, the largest accounting fraud in history. And that's usually a good time to reassess your career, Jim, yep. where you would like to be. And so I went to a less controversial industry, tobacco. Tobacco, that's right. Yes. From the frying pan, <laughs> as they say. That's right. But they did at the time own Kraft Foods as well. Um, you know, consumer products. And so my career progression was increasing responsibility in in-house roles from a junior lawyer, mid-level lawyer, senior lawyer, until right around 2011, I got an amazing opportunity to go work in the Obama administration as an appointee and become a general counsel running the law department of a federal agency. And I just couldn't pass that up. So that you know, weave of being open and flexible led me to take that role, which was a direct uh, contributor to me then running a federal agency. And after doing a lot of work there that I thought was impactful, I came back to corporate America and that's how I landed back in Norfolk Southern in 2018. You touched on being open and flexible. Tell me about that and I suppose the influence that had on your career because clearly you've had such a, a broad and a wide ranging group of activities and you know, positions. Is it about um, being open to opportunities? Tell me about how that was instilled in you, I suppose. I think it is definitely about having the confidence that you can learn yeah. within reason. I, I would not yeah. dabble in something that's catastrophic. Um, you don't dabble in surgery yeah. or building rockets. Um, but I, I think having three older siblings and watching the just the hard work that my parents believed and exhibited. If you work hard, you can learn new skills, new hobbies, new yep. this. And if you have a relationship network that will support you and you can approach your tasks with humility and recognize you won't learn it all immediately, but you can keep working at it and be humble, but still confident in your own skill set and, and carving out your own capabilities um, while partnering with people, you, you really can do just about anything. It sounds extremely yeah. corny, but I think I am more open to taking risks and more open to evaluating my opportunities because I look at them differently. And I look at them as though, okay, is this a puzzle that I could find additional pieces? Those are people, resources, other um, prior experiences and piece this together yeah. into a mosaic where I can contribute in a new environment. And if the answer is yes, I might be more willing than others to take a chance and contribute while I'm still learning and being challenged. Are those characteristics, what do you think, are they innate that you were born with them, you were taught to have that kind of risk appetite and the confidence level that you can learn? I mean, you talked about the influence of your older siblings, your parents, presumably, because um, to me, that's part and parcel of a quality that I think is really key, especially when you're younger, just just the resilience bit, the, the, the belief, but also just resilience and recognizing that you can do try different things and they might not work out. 
and that's fine because of, you know you've got the confidence level things will be okay you now I've got three uh, three kids and I always think about and they're older kids too but always think about okay what is it to create that kind of environment and instill that hopefully that kind of um, those attributes in those, in those around us particularly those younger around us or you know those that we're mentoring it's such a great question. I don't think it's nature or nurture. I actually yeah. think it's nature and nurture. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm pretty positive, Jim. I was baked this way. I, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, at least my recollection um, and my family's recount of it, which is probably more accurate yeah. because they could watch my evolution as a baby. I was, I think I was kind of an older soul of why, why, let me ask a yeah. question. I'm curious about that. And I, I, I wanted to know. And I also think being the youngest of yeah. four, I wanted to keep up with yeah. people who were eight, 10 and 15 years older. There's some energy that just requires you to have more drive and, and more yeah. motivation if you're going to keep up with, with people who are that much yeah. more mature and sophisticated. But I, I think hearing it now, professors, family members, I think I was baked this way and then people yep. mentored and nurtured those basic personality characteristics. Yeah. And tell me when you look back on your career to date, what are the what are some of the turning points or the key influencing factors that uh, that impacted on, on that career? Wow. Well, I I think many people, I, you know, this is a great conversation for dinner and lunch because many yeah. of us have those moments of reflection yep. uh, and crossroads. Yep. And I don't, I think part of life is recognizing, you know, when you're 20s, 30s, and even 40s, you think of things in a binary way. For me, yep. I can think back on multiple crossroads, and I knew they were crossroads at the time. Do I go to law school or do I attend graduate school for art history? Well, yeah, art history felt like a more narrow niche field that it would be difficult if I wanted to pivot at a later date. Moving from one controversial workplace to another, which also included a move and moving my family. And I've done that a couple of times, actually. And so- Never easy. Never easy, especially never if, easy. if they're younger, Jim, it's it's fine. I, we only have one yep. daughter, but if they're older, you know, which is the calculus that I make now, it's not quite as easy to have these pivotal mm. moments. And jobs of a lifetime, and it's true, they often come at the most inopportune times yep. in the most inopportune places. And you, you really have to make sure that you have a support network. So the crossroads that I have faced in my career are really not about, do I go left or right? It's what family, friend, maybe even external, you know, au pair, nanny, whatever people need, what are the, the systems and support networks that I can develop in order to pursue a dream, but not to the detriment of my friends, my health, my yeah. family, et cetera. And that's really the crossroads calculus. But you know, going from corporate America to public service, huge turning point. Do I leave a perfectly good yeah. corporate gig where I'm doing well and well, yeah. take a third of the pay at yeah. an uncertain time and this person might not even get reelected? <laughs> Yep. So, yeah, it's difficult. Well, just even thinking about that decision, because you are giving up, well, you know, two-thirds of the pay, you, you know, the uncertainty of a political, you know, political position. What makes you say, you know what, I am going to give that a shot? 
it is right for me right now, despite those risks, risks, you know, this is what I see as the upside. Tell me about that. Yeah. So that analysis took a while, uh, took se- yeah. several months actually. And I, I did call upon my advice, my, what I call board of advisors, friends, former bosses, mentors. Yep. And the analysis was by taking this new role, are you going to learn more in it than you would where you are today? Will you be challenged in a way that will help you grow emotionally and professionally? Do you know enough to actually contribute and not commit malpractice, right? Is this something that you can can learn and contribute um, while you're still uh, delving into a completely new substantive area? What relationships do you have that you can tap into to help you get up to speed? How humble are you willing to be to tell people that you're going to lead you know more than I do. And I'm willing yeah. to be vulnerable and say, I'm not looking to be you as an expert, but I am looking to you to help me learn so that I can provide broader strategy, help you with your own career growth. It's a symbiotic relationship. And I respect the talent that you're bringing, but I also have things that I'm going to bring to, to this role. How do we work together for a common outcome or a common good? and recognize that each of us has an expertise in something that we're, we're going to combine to make, you know, hopefully a, a better product or, or outcome. And then I thought, what happens on the other side of this? So I take yeah. this job. The, is this yeah. something? And that's, what I, yeah. and that's what I was thinking. What's the long term? What's the game plan, the long term benefit? Because the payoff, essentially, because there was sacrifice there. Yeah. What does your think at that point, at least, is the long term here is the payoff, the benefit for me, for my family? Well, and I, I had to ask myself, am I going to develop enough transferable skills at a senior enough level with significant sort of executive portability that it's worth it. And will the relationships and expertise and some of the really unusual situations that I will find myself in, is that gonna make me a more savvy and uh, capable, not just a lawyer. I started to answer your question, I started thinking about this as, will it make me a better business person and employee at a senior level? And so when I started to unpack that over the, the latter weeks before I decided to take the first big risky move and leave corporate America and go into public service, I started to think about where else am I going to get the opposite perspective of being a regulator, where my primary role has been in a regulated entity. I've been the regulated. Now I'm going to get to see the other side of this. That's pretty invaluable. Um, yeah. And that will, even if I stay in the regulatory role, this is going to be helpful because I have both perspectives to marry um, and bring to bear on, on situations and problems. The second thing was, where else are you going to get the kind of public scrutiny where you were forced to listen to and reconcile the differences between a number of stakeholders, communities, Congress, different federal agencies, companies, trade associations. It's a rare corporate job that or role in a job that allows you to have to integrate those voices in a way where most likely some of those people are going to be angry. But you have to fashion a resolution that almost like a Venn diagram helps reach a point yeah. of progress. So I started just to, to unpack all yeah. of those things and think, are those transferable skills that allow me to contribute more significantly after this role? 
And the calculus was, yes, um, I think it will. Um, and learning a new area yeah. certainly didn't hurt, area of the law, area yeah. of, of industry and business. And, and Vanessa, I've noticed um, a couple of recent board appointments too, uh, one at Eastman, one with Southern Company. It, it Was that part of the long-term goal too? And uh, was that part of the skill set that you were looking to develop during the course of your career and, uh, and to take these kind of decisions um, all these kind of positions to develop those skill set? It was. Um, and I was, yep. I mean, I have to say, I feel extremely lucky that I can do those now because in, it, to be honest and they're just transparent with people, I had probably anticipated it would be a few years from now, um, you know, just sort of, okay, well, I'm, I'm thinking about how to synthesize all of these experiences and contribute towards, you know, retirement. Um, so to be able to have this kind of a board role while I'm at a publicly traded company is really invaluable. And I'm, I mean, I have to yeah. say I'm pretty grateful that not only my own company and, and CEO, uh, as well as the other boards that I'm on, valued having those perspectives on the board. But as when I was running, uh, when I was chairperson and CEO of the Chemical Safety Board, overseeing the chemical industry and its incidents and understanding what drives these companies, how do they make decisions regarding um, safety, process safety in particular, what are the macroeconomic issues, M&A, regulatory, um, external pressures, international uh, challenges and navigating different um, regimes financially, consumer, et cetera. How are they thinking about all of the risks and determining how to appropriately allocate their resources, determine which risks you mitigate now versus later and defer. Yeah. And how do you do that at a time when you also want to continually motivate employees and have them be invested in a common vision or mission so that you're all focused on those same resource allocations and risk mitigations? It's, it is clearly more art than science. And um, being in that, those roles, you really start to appreciate, wow, as a board member, you can ask 50,000, 20,000 foot questions that it's harder to see when you're in my, in my day yeah, job. In the weeds. Yeah, in the weeds and the blades of grass every day. Yeah. Let's do a bit of a deeper dive um, into uh, Norfolk Southern, the, the legal department there that, that you run. And I think you recently stood up a legal operations uh, department. Tell me a little bit about that and uh, some of the, let's say, the early stages and the early goals uh, of doing so. Well, thank you for asking that. That is uh, definitely a passion for me. Yep. Um, we had a robust analytics um, group within the litigation team when I arrived at NS. So the skills were there, but having come from before the federal government, a Fortune 15 company that was international, before we started spinning things off, um, having a legal ops team just seemed to be extremely efficient. They've been around for years. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to take what was the seed in the analytics group and grow that into, or let's say bloom, that uh, work and skill set into an initiative that could help us drive and consolidate financial vendor knowledge and information management work, as well as the strategic planning of the department and some human capital so that we would have a single center of excellence within the yeah. law department 
you know, and, and to be candid, we established that in 2020. It was driven by the fact that we, as a company, wanted to become more efficient, wanted to become more productive, wanted to become more um, cost effective. And looking at the opportunity of having a true legal ops, legal operations team and not an analytics team really said to me, we could provide strategic support, not only to our senior leadership within the law department, but we would be able to, to speak the language of the business people in how we were driving value added services and actually creating favorable impact to the bottom line in financial terms, you know, terms of liability averted um, versus revenue enhanced and how we were total spend of on law firms as a percentage of our total revenue. Right? So just being able to start to articulate in a more precise business focused way, what the value of the law department was. And, and you know, we can explore this question a little bit further. I'll just say this. Yep. One of the things that was the brainchild was we have so much data, we could be more proactive business partners in the law department if we were to take the data. Yep. And then say, gosh, you guys, we see we seem to have an emerging trend or an emerging set of litigation here. Why don't we try to focus on working with regulators or the plaintiffs on this particular issue and try to reach a resolution, which will ultimately drop our six figure, seven figure spend. And so really yep. using the data in order to develop proactive plans. Yeah, proactive plans. Yep. Um, and I mean, before taking the first step, um, you, know, you talked about becoming more efficient, productive. Uh, what What is the the low-hanging fruit that you look for? Because that's typically on a new initiative, you're saying, what, what are the early wins? Um, you know, we've got something. We've got the legal, the analytics team. I'm going to build that up into a, um, a more fully-fledged operation team. What do you aim for? Is it, is it to be able to, um, uh, let's say, reduce costs? Is it to be able to be better at predicting outcomes, the kind of litigation that's coming up. What, what, what do you think, what, what are the first cabs off the rank that you want to knock over? That's an excellent question. Because because I'm sure there's lots of people listening there that might have, you know, the basics of a legal operations team or, uh, you know, the foundation they can start pulling together. What should they be looking at? And it's going to be, of course, different from different organizations, but what would you recommend? It is. So the before, um, I'll give just a couple of bullet points on that, but the first thing you really yeah, want to sure. do is benchmark with your peers, if that's possible. Yep. Because to the extent they have a legal operations team and it's more mature than yours, being able to call a fellow general counsel and ask them, would you have built it this way again if you if you yep. had known what you know? Um, also, participating in the expert associations like CLOCK, it's a legal ops yep. consortium, was great. And then talking to our law firms, but and and honestly, also doing a technology assessment to see what tools are hot yep. and and being integrated. But the three things, Jim, that we really looked at the first were how do we get our arms around our spend? And just something yep. as simple as outside counsel billing compliance, making sure yep. that we weren't receiving late bills, duplicates, overbilling, non-compliance with things that were excluded charges. We saved yep. seven figures do doing that yep. work. And it's low hanging fruit because you have to look at the bills yep. anyway. Um, but really putting a legal ops lens and focus on that was, was one thing. Number two, Looking at your administrative support, how it's diffused and distributed throughout the department 
is a low-hanging fruit exercise as well. Can you consolidate all of the paralegals and legal analysts and legal um, support into your legal ops team and have them provide work from as a centralized effort, organizing CLE, doing you know about yep. document production. So that's number that's number two. And then third, I think you really have to start looking at if you want to be most effective. The lowest hanging fruit is to start figuring out what your KPIs are going to be. What are your key yep. performance indicators? And after you tick through top law department. Uh, litigation metrics, non-litigation, IP, compliance, spent, you really start to then find out where you have the low hanging fruit and the really, really high pieces of fruit that are going to potentially take you months or years to, to implement. Yep. And um, what would you like to see if you were to project out two or three years, what would you like to see? How would you like your legal ops department to be um, operating? What are the kind of um, outcomes you'd like to see um, uh, projecting ahead a little? Projecting ahead, I would love for us to have taken advantage of the external AI as that software platform matures and integrated analytics, statisticians, um, statistical analyses yep. to really enhance not just litigation outcomes, but every deal that we do um, being able to be articulated in a, we achieved X contribution to the company's financial targets. Yeah. And we did that either in how much we saved in legal fees because we did it in-house or we did it in a novel way with an alternative service provider. Um, we to, This is a harder one. I think people who are in safety recognize how difficult it is to describe what you averted but being able yep. to also get to a place years from now that yep. you can identify the liability that you avoided by taking certain legal actions and approaches and settlements and um, use yep. of counsel. Which is real value. I'm being able to articulate that as absolute value. It's great. Um, and, you know, honestly, Jim, to your point, being able to overlay that with the data about our individual attorney's productivity, productivity yep. per a lawyer, per paralegal, contributory um, impact to our yep. expense reduction and savings without it having to be headcount. And some of that's going to be process improvement. I really want us to be a revenue generating center at one point in time where we are thinking, hey, we figured out a way to go collect um, additional yep. bankruptcy and contract fees. And we have an algorithm that shows us we're not doing enough to collect fees for people who come onto property. We already have a phenomenal team who thinks that way. And being able to enhance that with the undeniable power of processing computer processing, yep. humans are great at yep. a lot of things, you know, analyzing terabytes of data and spitting out the results and trending is not our forte. Yep. <laughs> but, but being able to, in a few years, have access to more robust, and it's almost a second nature, you know, just a, an automatic process that every deal we do and every legal project is interpreted through that business lens. That's where I would love for us to be. Yeah. And that, dovetails into the next question I was going to ask because I know you've got a strong focus on process mapping around the legal work done at um, Norfolk. Is that what you've just touched on there? And can you expand a little bit on that? So the process mapping is integrated into the um, KPIs and metrics 
that a legal operations team would use. Process mapping is for people who are in the consulting world, it's a grid. You take yeah. a look at all of the work that you're doing in your department or in sections of the department and you map high and low impact or value, some people use a synonym value work, and you overlay that with high and low effort. And the goal is to remove from your processes all low impact work, particularly if it's yeah. low impact and high, high effort. effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's not a good formula, is Not it? a good formula. And, you know, and to really start to tailor your in-house resources to high impact, high value, high, high effort work that's going to drive yep. you know, whatever the strategic plan is. And if, and if you can find the sweet spot of high impact, but low yep. effort work, low effort, yep. do that all day long. And then it allowed that process mapping allows you to automate or outsource all of the other work that is not going to generate the kind of yep. value or return. Yeah, no, and not the the needle moving um, right. outcomes, which you know, which we're all looking for. That's right. That's right. The last twelve months or so um, being difficult for everyone. Can you tell me a little bit about the impact that COVID has had? Let's say on the business, um, and then on on the legal department, and perhaps some strategies that you've adopted uh, to soften that impact. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, boy, you know, COVID had a significant impact, even though we continued as a company to operate 24 by 7, 365 as part of a critical infrastructure as a railroad, we run 24 by 7. We transitioned very quickly to a remote in, environment. And I mean that literally almost overnight, Jim, it, shipping iPads and printers and laptops to people so that they wouldn't have to come back into the office. And we did that seamlessly throughout the law department as well as the organization as a whole. Um, I think many departments clearly faced the challenge of what do we do with training, um, meetings that used to be in person and in, whether that's audits, inspections. And so for us, what I saw is that that transition to remote is people really pivoted. Luckily it was global. Everyone had to pivot yeah. um, and figure out a way using technology like this to do inspections and training and in, interact with clients in a way that was novel. I do think that being at home and having that capability and finding the evolution in technology and its availability and accessibility has also led us to make sure we focus on health and wellness. We've all heard, whether it's anecdotally or in the news, that people feel, employees feel as though they are working 24 hours a day Yeah. because now, instead of having time in your car to drive or metro or train, you you literally are moments away every morning from <laughs> starting your day. From the next call. For the, right, for the next call, you wake up and it's it's ever present. So, yep. you know, that, being, that om, omnipresent feeling is something that I think we will, as managers and corporations, have to manage and force people to return to a sense of break faux commute yep. or, or alternative vacation strategies so that we don't start to believe that because of the pandemic, even, you know, hey, Jim's on vacation, but we'll just 
know, yeah. let, let him uh, loop in by Zoom. Yeah, he won't. He won't mind. He won't mind. It's electronic. He doesn't have to fly I anywhere. Know, that's right. Um, so I, I do. He's think, on a beach anyway. It's not yeah, going to be a bother. What does he care? <laughs> you know, he's living it up. So I think that's been one of the consequences of, of balancing. And I think also we're seeing the generational gap of people who prefer different age categories. Some are going to prefer to come back to work and be there five yeah. days a week. And some are demographically are going to want to have two three days where they're working yeah. remotely. And so I think we have to all embrace hybrid work going forward, managing what I just described as well, which is the health and wellness and making sure people have breaks and are integrated when they don't show up physically into the office. Yep. And what about from a personal perspective? How did it impact on you, Vanessa? And what, what have you learned, do you think, about yourself over the course of the last 12 months or so and the way you work? Yeah, that is an excellent question. Um, so for anyone who has taken the Myers-Briggs, and if you haven't, look it up. Um, I No one ever believes me, Jim, that I score on the introversion scale, right? No, I'm, I'm sorry, Vanessa. Blaming I don't believe you. Okay? I'm, I'm going to call it out. I'm sorry if have, I don't you, believe you. You have it. to just trust me. <laughs> <laughs> it's all true. It's flaming introvert. But but all that means is I re recharge by having independent, solitary time. So while yeah. some people love the, the hubbub and the energy of a sales conference and a marketing conference, and they yeah. feel completely excited when they leave, uh, I'm an introvert. And so that, that yeah. might make me feel like I need a nap. Yeah. Uh, so, so what I have learned, like many of us, you know, lawyers, engineers, certain, certain career types have similar personality characteristics. Yeah. And I have learned that over this year, in order to feel energized, I have to carve out, even if it's DNS, do not schedule 30 minutes to walk around the block yep. and to take a break. Lest I am the, I'm, I know many of us are like this. You will take the time and there's never, you know, something that you don't want to read, right? There, you always, there's always yep. something more interesting to, to read. Always something to do. To do exactly. or to type or to, and so I, I have learned three things. One, schedule time more aggressively. And someone used the phrase, um, you have to ruthlessly prioritize. Yeah. The second is I really enjoyed spending time with my family and really carving out time that's different spending where we might've had Friday night movie night, really cutting off the work and being focused and having a, a vibe. And present. Yeah, and present. It's yeah. really yeah. critical now because you're in the house with everybody all day. And then the third thing from work is Boy, people are really resilient and creative. And it, the one thing I want to keep after the pandemic is being mindful of walking the halls, calling people, scheduling time in small chats and one-on-one, -on -one, just to say, how are you? What are you thinking about? What are you working on? How can I be of service? And are there any cool ideas or articles or things that you've read? Because people are fascinating. Yeah. And in the busyness of the world, you start to lose sight of that. And the pandemic slowed everything down and reminded us, it's good to have a conversation with Jim every now and then just to pick yeah. his brain and yeah. uh, talk about things that are adjacent to your work, but not necessarily squarely germane to your work. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the themes you mentioned there, the, the being present. Um, I think that is harder and harder when the um, when the line between work and home 
um, personal professional is even more blurred as it is right now. And, you know, speaking to someone, a family member who's walked into the room, but you're actually still reading that email, you're trying to get through that. It, it, it's even hard. And I think that's one thing when I look back and my kids were younger, I do wonder whether I still didn't really get that balance just quite right. Cause it's, it is hard. There's always something to be worrying about, to be thinking about, to, you know, ahead of you in your professional life. But if it's one word of advice or one bit of advice I can give to perhaps those a little bit younger and you know, balancing that, just being learning how to be really present so you're not missing. Um, you know. That is an excellent piece of advice. And uh, because yeah. we're older parents, it's, hard, it's but, very difficult. Yeah. But I'm, you know, we're older parents. And yeah, I have six nephews and a niece who were older. And it's, it, you, you watch and learn. And if you're willing to yep. learn from others, I definitely value what were you saying and putting yep. actively putting the phone down. It will still be there. Yep. Trust me, the email's yep. not going. Yeah, it will. That's right. <laughs> the fleeting moment where your 12-year-old wants to speak to you, that's going somewhere. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Now, Vanessa, recently you were named as one of the National Diversity Council's Power 50. So congrats there. Talk to me a little bit about um, uh, diversity and inclusion, the importance to you and some of the initiatives perhaps that you've been focused on or Norfolk Southern has been focused on and the impact that that's had. Well, thank you. I mean, that was extremely flattering. Now I feel the pressure to keep living up to that too, which is, you know, that's good. But DNI was important to us as a company, certainly important to me long before last spring and summer. And yeah. I, I suppose the one positive is that um, it has accelerated and really progressed companies, government entities, just the public's focus on what does it really mean to have true inclusion, focus on diversity, and to have programs in place that don't inadvertently continue to underscore or institutionalize exclusion. And so I, you know, I, I say, I'll answer it two ways, Jim. One is people with families really understand the beauty and, collect, and complexity of diversity. Right? You don't have to like everyone, especially if you're related to them, but, <laughs> but you have to respect them. And you can't actively decide, well, we're just not inviting, inviting half of you to the picnic, you know, today we're, we're, we're going to have a family outing, but you know, only 50% of you can come. And so I think when you're championing um, initiatives, you have to look at what is the data today and what does that data tell you? And so when you ask, you know, what do, what do we do and how do we focus on it? One of the things that we did in the law department first was let's get a, a layout of where people are in their in the band levels. What is the socio-demographic level uh, of, of data that we have? Who's being promoted? From where are we hiring? Are we hiring from the same places over and over again? How are we doing on retention? How are we doing on, on um, morale? And let's take a look at our engagement surveys seriously and share the results and then get feedback from employees. Does that sound right to you? Does that, does that resonate with you and what do we do? And so we started having small group discussions. I am lucky to have a vice president of law 
who is also extremely committed to communication and transparency. So we, we can tag team and share that we share the data. And then we said, what are we going to do to make sure that we hire? And we started using recruiters. We started going to places that had not yet been tapped outside of just the typical HBCU and um, specific trade associations or uh, bar associations. And we started casting a wider net using social media yeah. more broadly, word of mouth, you know, et cetera. We wanted to make sure that from a retention perspective, we calibrated and worked with HR to make sure that people based on their backgrounds and resumes were in the right spot and that we hadn't missed an opportunity to change someone's band level or promote and just to make sure that there was equity there. And we, we took that very seriously and executed on it. We got small groups to tell us what kind of events would you like? Would you like to hear speakers? Yep. You know, what do you need from us to make sure that people understand the challenges with diversity and inclusion? So we started doing that with CLE. And from a retention perspective, you have to be willing to promote people laterally, or make a path for them elsewhere in the organization if you don't have a way for them to move upward because you want talent and you don't want to lose the talent simply because you don't have a particular position yeah. in your organization. Holding ourselves accountable in that way and also making sure that we were trying to, and I, I use track loosely, but trying to monitor our progress on hiring, retention, and looking at those metrics for our department we also started to do the same thing for our outside counsel because they are an extension or a reflection of us. And we thought that that might be symbiotic because we wanted secondments and we want people who might be interested one day in coming in house. So we sent surveys out to our outside counsel. What are you doing? What awards are you winning? What challenges are you facing? Where are you recruiting? How are you promoting? How are you cross training? Yep. Cross training is a big deal for me. And are you ultimately willing to partner with us as your client to make sure that the people you hire also feel like they have access to us and can grow and maybe one day want to work where we are. And so we've been doing that among other things to make sure that that what we think we're doing and, and we feel like we're doing is actually being borne out in data. Yep. Because sometimes you do get into a comfort zone or you know it's hard to see the truth. And so we're trying to make it much more apparent by really continuing to episodically check how we're doing uh, internally and then hold our outside vendors accountable to the same metrics. I'm interested in um, uh, when you went to your outside counsel and you went through that process, what, what did you learn? And is there anything that surprised you in, in a good or a bad way? Well, uh, maybe both. And I'll, I'll leave the yep characterization to the listeners. Yep. Um, so uh, one of the things that surprised me was that in a pandemic, when we were all in many ways equalized in our challenges of onboarding remotely and finding talent, and we simultaneously learned how open the world is, one, one curiosity was learning that people believe they cannot find diverse talent. Mm. Or, or women who are lawyers in the United States to come work at their firms. One other, th you know, one other thing that was surprising. So, sorry, so just so I'm right. So no diverse or women lawyers in the U.S. or struggling to find. Yes. I, I think that's the point you're making. Yes, yep. uh, that they were hard to find. Yeah. I know a lot of really phenomenal lawyers with social skills, high IQs, great experience and 
and remarkable pedigree. And there, uh, the other surprising thing I learned was that there's still a belief that there's a war on talent and everybody's going after the, the maybe the 10 or 20 diverse people in the country. Yeah. And therefore, once they have taken a job, they're unavailable. And that is um, unfortunate because when you start to cast a wider net and not fish from the same pond, you realize that, you know, first in your class at a university of a meaningful reputation, and let's say in the top 100 universities or top 50 universities in the United States, is the same as being 10th in your class yep. at the number one you know, university in the country. And so just hearing and, and learning that some law firms are doing a phenomenal job recalibrating what excellence looks like and believing that you have to find excellence wherever it exists and then train and cultivate it the same way you train, you know, somebody from a marquee one to two, one, you know, one to three ranking university. Um, and that retention is also about when they get there culturally, are they at least, is, do people speak to them in the hallway? Are they invited to coffee? And recognizing that some people are really doing a phenomenal job of shifting from diversity to inclusion after diverse talent is hired to make sure that those people wanna contribute and will generate ideas and a different perspective on the client's work in order to generate better outcomes. And I think when we're in families and everybody's struggling with, you know, why can't, why won't the television work? And the one random, you know, cousin comes in or maybe a younger sibling and says, oh, well just bend it this way. You know, you, oh, Eureka, why didn't we think of that? Well, you know what? You needed a diverse perspective to come into the room yep. and see it a little differently. And so I, I've appreciated that our firms have responded to those surveys and in many cases, very robustly and detailed fashion, Jim. Um, and some have work to do. It could be the regions that they're in and the size and the practice groups and those things you have to account for. But there, it, it helped me highlight that there's still a lot of work to do, but the pandemic has shown us you can find people yep. all over. Yep. And they're willing to move, yeah. Work to be done and... Um... I'm, I have a level of confidence that uh, it will be done if it's required to be done by the customer. That is, the, the GC, the GC's team, um, the client. If the client requires it to be done, I've always seen law firms and other professional service providers, they, they are excellent at delivering what a client um, wants. And as long as that's part of the requirement, and, and I think there has been certainly a fundamental shift in the last 12 or 18 months um, to making that more than making it a requirement rather than a nice to have or um, certainly anything short of that. So I, I think that is the fun, that is the real needle mover because um, uh, then law firms will be, they'll be measured by it and successful or not successful um, uh, by reference to it. So and maybe you know, we have to nothing do. like client. Yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was going to say maybe we have to do a better job as in-house counsel articulating. It's not just because it's moral and nice or, or that there's a, yep. a more emotional element to it. It's because we really want different people giving the same problem a look in order to develop better outcomes. And I don't know that 
we've done the imperative, you know, it's mandated that you've described equity across the board. And we haven't yep. articulated why it's important that this is a business imperative to your point. It's not just a nice to have. Uh, Vanessa, what, what keeps you up at night? <laughs> not telling my CEO something that shows up in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> That'll keep you up every yep. night. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I think after the pandemic, I've probably developed a more roll with the punches kind of yep. mentality. I'm not sure that there's much that keeps me up at night from a literal standpoint. There are things from a risk mitigation perspective that I worry about, but my approach to that is, ah, it's, I'm not gonna lose sleepless nights. When I'm awake, I'm trying to figure out how do we calibrate if this is low, medium, and high risk? Yep. What resources do we bring to bear to manage them? Are we telling the right people within the organization that we've identified a risk or have one? Have we elevated it to the board and to the senior team? If we think it has the potential, more than 50% potential to spiral outward. And what are the external forces that are highlighting that risk? So right now, climate change, environmental issues, sustainability, social justice, DEI, there are a handful of topics that if they're not keeping you up at night, because I recognize some people will be, you know, really nervous about those things. Then during the day, when you know that those are going to be top issues for shareholders and stakeholders, you should be developing a plan of how you're going to articulate what you're doing to address those issues. And so I do sleep well, but I would be lying to you, Jim, if I didn't say, but I could be a little nervous during the day because these are big issues. And yep. They are bet the company yep. issues and they're global. So everyone is grappling with post-pandemic work, health and wellness, DEI, sustainability, human capital management, potential M&A, tax, trade. You know, those are going to continue. But I'm a believer that you need a good day's rest to be able to handle all these issues during the week. Handle all of that. Yeah. Now, I'm... Stolen this question from uh, another podcast I was listening to the other day and I loved it. So um, characteristics or traits that you would like to see? I think you've said you've got one, chi yes. one child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me about the characteristics or traits that you would like to see your child grow up with. Oh, those are, that's a great question. Yeah. Authenticity, being, you're just being comfortable being yourself and in your own skin. Yeah. Your audio matches your video. Being inquisitive, being a risk taker. I'm obviously biased because I find that a yeah. valuable characteristic to have. Well, typically, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> so you, you might be good on that you one. Know, coachability. I, I definitely would like my 12-year-old, if, she, if she's listening, to have yeah. coachability. But the two things that are the most important to me, I think, not just because of this year, but in, because... I was raised this way, it's for her to have compassion and empathy and to recognize the value of relationship capital. You don't, everything isn't an affront to you. Everything isn't a slight. Pick your battles, meet people where they are and, and kind of have an understanding that sometimes when they're snippy to you, it's because they had a really bad morning. Yeah, It's not about you. Yep. And just to put those things in perspective and never, as my dad would say, don't let anyone affect your mood. How you feel is none of my business. <laughs> Only how you treat people. <laughs> oh, now, 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 if my children were listening, they'd say, "Are you speaking? You mean speaking to my dad?" Because I talk about that uh, all the time. How can do not let 
other people influence the way you feel. Yes. You're empowering them in the in a way that they have no right to be empowered. <laughs> and when you learn that, I think in the earlier you can learn that, the much happier as a person I think you're going to be. One more before we wrap up, uh, Vanessa. Advice that you would give to your 25-year-old self. Oof. Gosh, you know, I... That ambitious, aggressive, career-focused, um, 25-year-old self, what advice looking back now? This sounds awful, Jim, but I <laughs> I don't really have regrets. No? No. Yeah, no, that's okay. I traveled in my 20s. I got multiple degrees. I, I took jobs that were interesting. I met a lot of phenomenal people along the way. I kept my hobbies. I tried to exercise, which I might want to rethink and tell that to my current yourself. Um, <laughs> and you know, I I tried to pivot. If I if something didn't go well, I would pivot in the moment. So there isn't anything that I want to go back and do. Yeah. I would tell my twenty five year old self, buckle up, because there's a lot of stuff that's coming that is completely unpredictable, and maybe stop you know, hoping that you can control and plan things and that they're yep. run out in a linear fashion. Maybe that's what I would tell me. They're going to yep. wind and they're going to weave and you're, you just have to continue to be open to taking them. But I kind of did. I mean, I did take those winds and roads. <laughs> yep. And nothing that you were worrying about back then, which is on reflection, wasn't worth worrying about. Well, you know, I will, that's a slightly different question. And I will say, yes, yeah. I did. I did worry too much uh, in my early years about, and I think this might be a gender thing, being liked as much as I was respected, right? Yep. It's like, okay, well, I want the team to feel good about this decision, yep. even if it's not good. And now you have to realize that eh, sometimes you're gonna deliver bad news and it just is what it is. Yep. Yeah. Vanessa, it's been an absolute blast speaking to you. You've been a fantastic guest. Thanks so much for joining no, thank me. thank you. This was great. And I'm going to go write down what I'd like to tell my 50-year-olds. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day, Vanessa. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you. 